Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. It was, it started to become kind of a marker for me that I thought like when I can reliably say, I can, I can replace this, I can do without this. Like I am making quote unquote enough money that I no longer need this crutch. Um, then I'll be making it as a freelancer. And that's kind of what the talk gets into is that really the rubric of making it is so nebulous and it's so different for all of us. And it changes so much throughout the course of our career. And we have to get honest with ourselves about what making it looks like. And sometimes we have to get honest about the fact that that's a really contradictory drive, that making it or making enough money could be just not being on food stamps, right? And I didn't really think beyond that. It was like, oh, if I'm no longer below the poverty line, I'm successful. Whereas for a lot of people, like I think people who have come from a more um, privileged financial background might be like, oh, when I'm, you know, making 200,000 a year, like then I'll be successful. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Lucy, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. I love this litany. Can I just say on every podcast that it's like, thanks so much for having me. Like, this is the prayer that we go through at the start of every yeah. exchange of the podcast. Anyway, thank you so much for having me, Serena. I'm really excited to be here. And I am genuinely excited to be here. Well, you know, I was introduced to you by way of um, our mutual friend, Matt Monroe, who has been a longtime listener and, and is a dear friend. And anybody he, he recommends uh, for the show, I take very seriously. Uh, and then I got a chance to dig into some of your work. And I thought, yeah, this is kind of a no brainer. So I want to start by asking you, where in the world did you grow up and what impacted where you grew up end up having on your life? So much. Okay. Uh, so I grew up in Ojai, California, which is a little town about two hours north of LA. It's famous for a bunch of weird reasons. Um, <laughs> <laughs> But the the things that I really loved about it was that there were a lot of um, British immigrant families there, uh, like mine. My parents are both from the United Kingdom. They came to America independent of one another and met in L.A. in the film industry and had a child together. I was born in L.A. And then when I was about two and a half, they decided that they wanted to raise me somewhere a little more rural. And so they got out and moved to the countryside. And Ojai is pretty small. It's about 10,000 people. And there are a number of weird intersecting social circles there or like theoretical backgrounds there. It was kind of a hotbed of um, spiritual liberal thinkers in the 50s and 60s and has this kind of Shangri-La vibe. And the childhood that I had there was pretty idyllic. I think children in Ojai tend to trend one of two ways. They either think it's the most boring place on earth and they can't wait to get out, which I can understand. Or if they're like me and they're a big outdoors nerd and like into all the hippie stuff they're raised with, it's kind of paradise. And I certainly, when people ask what it was like growing up there, if they know anything about the town, uh-huh. I feel like it's a great place to grow up. It's not somewhere that I think I could have stayed. I may go back at some point, sure. uh, but I think a lot of people who come from small towns have this kind of attitude that like it's a wonderful place to be nurtured and to grow. And then at some point you've got to go, you've got to get out and like go 
make your mark on the world and and figure out what's out there and gain some perspective. And then maybe you bring that back. Yeah. But it was a really unique space because there were all these intersecting factors and the number of other English families in Southern California in general. But then like in Ojai specifically, when I think back on it, it's really odd to me that I had lots of other friends who were like Californian born children of British parents. <laughs> and that's a weird niche to fill. And I honestly, I've been dying to dig into this in more detail, possibly in comics, possibly just in writing. I don't know. Uh-huh. But as I get older, I become more and more grateful for those friendships because it's not that I would classify them as friends in the same way that you classify friends that you gain in your 20s or even in your late teens, you know, college, college age and above. Friends at that age, you select for particular traits. You find things in common and you connect with them. Friends that you grow up with, friends who have known you since you were in preschool are really different. You are thrown together by chance and then you have to kind of learn like you get to watch those people go through their entire life journey and it may take them really far away from you, but there is this thing namely that you like ate dirt together when you were six. And that is a a binding pact (laughs) that holds you to each other forever. And I was uh, interestingly just on the phone with a friend of mine um, who I've known since I was in preschool uh, the other night. And we were ruminating on the fact that it's so strange that we were really, you know, best, best friends in early grade school, like first through first through fourth grade, I would say. And we drew together all the time. She, her, her parents, not English, but both artists, uh, we would get together and we would draw constantly. You know, we had these universes that we would concoct together. And both of us through various circuitous routes have ended up becoming creative, independent freelancing professionals in our late twenties. And it was so interesting to be able to catch up, not really having spoken very often over the last few years and recognize that that's, the path that we've ended up on. And we started comparing notes about like, like we both went to uh, Krishnamurti schools and Krishnamurti, I presume has cropped up at some point on the podcast. I haven't been all the way through the archive, but I feel like you delve into like Buddhist spiritualist thought with a lot of your guests. Uh-huh. Uh, and Krishnamurti was an educational philosopher and thinker from uh, India who founded a number of schools in, in, in India, one in England and uh, one and kind of a half in Ojai bizarre chance thing. But I went to the Krishnamurti school for um, first through eighth grade and then moved to the high school that he had sort of co-founded with Aldous Huxley and Beatrice Wood and a number of these like radical intellectual um, sort of communist thinkers (laughs) in uh, the 50s. So I had this really unusual educational background. Ojai was not only a vibrant, natural, beautiful place, it was also full of these off-kilter educational experiences where we would meditate for 20 minutes before class in the morning and have all school councils where we would have a talking stick that we would pass around and like the um the local tribal group in the Ojai Valley traditionally is the Chumash people and so there's a lot of like spiritual in not infiltration because they were there first but like spiritual um cross-pollination I suppose like Ojai for better or worse, draws on those traditions. And there are some ways in which I would consider that appropriative. And there are some ways in which I think it coexists really beautifully. And uh, the town has obviously gentrified a lot since I was a kid. Um, and even more so from when previous generations of kids were kids to when I was a kid. So this is kind of the march of progress and it has positives and negatives. But I certainly remain incredibly grateful for the impact of having that off kilter education and being in a space that really foregrounded, uh, emotional honesty and 
self-knowledge and creativity. There's a lot of people like my parents who got out of the film industry or the rat race and like left to be in Ojai. So it means that there it's not a big city, but you have world-class talent. <laughs> so the creative communities there are really strong. There's a lot of fine artists, the uh, community theater scene is off the charts. And as somebody who was really into theater when I was younger, it uh, offered me incredible experiences to be involved in so many productions and learn so much craft and talk to so many different people. And it's a community, which has remained a really strong through line in my life is wanting to be connected to a web of people and not just a web of peers, but like an intergenerational, like a genuine community and community takes all sorts of forms and it's mediated through all types of spaces. But when I think about the influence of where I grew up and who I grew up with and the places that I went to school and even my family background, I mean, the whole reason my mother's family came to the U S from England was to, um, train as therapists. And my uncle became a therapist. My mother didn't. She went on to become a writer and a cartoonist for a while even, but, uh, she's been to therapy every week. They sit for each other, uh, as brother and sister and like talk through their various issues. And so I was raised in a real, like self-knowledge, emotional fluency, foregrounded kind of space. Mm-hmm. And as I progress in my career, I'm about seven years into being a cartoonist now, and I'm starting to grasp that a lot of what renders my work uh, valuable, both to me and to my audience, comes from that place, comes from stuff that was instilled in me at a very, very, very young age. Hmm. Wow. You know, um, <clears throat> a couple of questions coming from that. You know, I was thinking as you described the, the you know, the friendship that you've had since preschool, like I, I had a very strange upbringing that my parents dragged me all over the world. So I literally don't have any friends that I've known for that long. Um, you know, like I'm connected to some of them on Facebook just by, you know, chance, but not the kind of thing where I would actually call them up. I couldn't even, I probably wouldn't even know how to get in touch with them. Um, but one of the things that struck me is, as you know, as a kid, you're growing, you know, you're raised in this sort of very spiritual and, and sort of enlightened and, you know, higher state of consciousness environment. So this, this ties into something that I've been thinking about a lot recently, which is the notion of practice, right? We talk about creative practice. We talk about spiritual practice and the two aren't always couched in the same terms or, or they're not always listed as being a part of the same practice. And as I get older and as I do more work as a creator and I do more work as a human being, I see them as sort of one and the same. I think the, the practice of creativity for many is a, a practice of self-discovery. It's honing in on what matters to you the most. And the whole point of a practice is that you come back to it over and over and over again. And every time you come back to it, there's something new to learn. So of course I can't say that, you know, when I was a kid and I was like doing yoga in PE class or whatever, that that was uh, grand me some kind of deep spiritual insight at an early age. But I do think that laying those building blocks, it allows us to tread the same paths a little more smoothly. The, the pathways are there and you can return to them and you'll notice something new or maybe the trail goes a little further when you revisit it. I absolutely, Ojai again is an interesting <laughs> space because there is this uh, inherent mistrust of organized religion in in some ways. Like I maybe had one Christian friend growing up mm-hmm. and being atheist or agnostic or um, spiritual uh, was 
the dominant norm and religious people were this like, whoa, this, wow, I, I am not connected to this community at all. And even in the context of various spiritual practices, right, I went through the kind of customary preteen brush with Wicca mm-hmm. and all these other spaces that I was looking for something in. And I remember sitting at the base of this ash tree at the foot of our property, looking out over the mountains and lighting my little incense stick in the morning and thinking like, I want, there's something here that I'm not getting. I want this to be real in a way that it's not real for me right now. I want some kind of magical something to occur and it's not occurring and I don't quite get it because people are talking about something that I'm that I'm not grasping. So at the very least, I think at certain stages of my childhood, I was aware that there was more to get. And there were many stages where I felt like I did have access to pretty profound insights. And then there were also stages that I look back on and I'm like, God, you just didn't even know. <laughs> you had no idea. But we that's what practice is. Sometimes we show up and we do the work. I think that's actually the definition of what practice is, is we show up and we do the work even on days when we don't necessarily understand why we're doing it or why, or what the deeper purpose is. It's not always going to feel like you're exhaling angel dust onto a field of golden flowers, right? Like many days it will be frustrating and strange. And like, maybe you go out to surf and like the waves just aren't there. The swell is slack and like you're, there's just nothing happening, Mm -hmm. but you're out there. Yeah. You know, you're you're sitting on your board. You're like building the experience of being in the water. Mm-hmm. So walk me through leaving Ojai to how you end up doing the work that you do today. Yikes. Okay. So <laughs> uh, when I turned, was I, I was 17 when I left high school. Um, I was pretty determined that I wanted to take a gap year. I had a lot of wanderlust when I was a kid. We would travel every other year or so home to see family in England. I didn't have a massive extended family, but, um, the, the folks that we did have my, my mother's mother, my parents are older. So, uh, a lot of grandparents had died off at that point by the time I came on the scene, but it's going back to England to see my mother's mother and my godparents and all these people who were friends who were like family was a kind of biannual, um, pilgrimage. Uh, and, getting to travel internationally was an incredible gift when I was young. And I've had really interesting conversations with my parents about the financial um, choices that they made to make that possible. And the fact that it wasn't always within our means, but it was important to them that I see a bit of the world when I was still young. And that instilled this really deep wanderlust in me from an early age. And so I took off at 17 and went and spent eight months, um, bumming around Europe. I'd been working as a lighting designer in Ojai on various community theater productions and like scrimping and saving money and doing various odd jobs and uh, set off with, I don't know, maybe like $5,000 saved up and traveled around and uh, <clears throat> went to all, all over the UK and to France and Spain and Italy and had a hell of a time for eight months, like couch surfing my way through all of these different countries and taking some time to just explore and be on my own. And when I came back, I returned to a passion I discovered my senior year of high school, which was tall ship sailing. And I started doing, um, or I lent further into doing this live aboard position as a crew member on the tall ship Lady Washington on the West coast of the United States. And she's an incredible replica vessel that sails up and down the West coast teaching kids in the public about maritime history. And she's a fully functioning ship. So I was pursuing this um, childhood love of 
ships in the sea and sailing by getting to actually live and history by getting to live this reality. So I did that for another three or four months and then headed up to Portland for uh, college. I had done the usual college application gauntlet in 2007 when I was a senior, but deferred admission, which is something that I think gap years are not as common in the US. I think my parents were really comfortable with it because it's far more common in the UK. And when I was traveling on my own, I met many people who were kind of flabbergasted. There was one girl who I explained to her what I was doing and that I'd gotten into college, but I just told them I'd be coming a year later and that I was taking a gap year. And she said, you can't do that. That's illegal. (laughs) I was like, no, (laughs) I don't think so. Uh, But that's the, that's the attitude we have a lot of the time is that, you know, you've just got to like power through that education pipeline as quickly as possible. And heaven forfend children be given some space to like fuck up and learn things for themselves and I don't know, see some of the world and understand that education doesn't always happen in a classroom. A lot of it does, but you can also get a hell of a lot more out of it if you've got a bit of context for the breadth of the world. And obviously like eight months in Western Europe is going to be really different from eight months in a third world country or, you know, in like, and people do all kinds of different things in those spaces. And every travel experience grants us a particular slice of perspective. And the danger is taking that for the totality of having visited a country or having come into contact with a group of people. But I certainly think that it was a huge boon for me and other students that I've talked to who took time off before going to college have never said, oh, I really, really regretted it. It was the worst choice I ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, before we get further down uh, down this path of, you know, where, where I went from here, uh, one, I'm curious, you know, what, what would you say to, to parents who are listening and why do you think that our sort of dominant educational paradigm is, like you said, to go through the education pipeline as quickly as possible. Because I can tell you, my Indian parents, if I had suggested, hey, you know what, I'm going to take a year off before I go to college, <laughs> they would have been like, the hell you are. Yeah. They would have been like, you can stay here and get a job at McDonald's. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think my parents would have gone for it at all. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've heard the same thing about friends who, you know, I've seen friends of mine who have become very happy and successful in their careers. And instead of getting a job after college, they found the like most sort of, you know, bum out thing they could like one of our friends became a, uh, you know, a lift operator at a ski resort and hung out for a year at a ski resort. And then he uh-huh. ended up becoming a successful lawyer and he's happy. Mm, and and yeah. I've seen that pattern so many times. So one, why do you think that is the dominant educational paradigm Two, you know, having done it and gone through our educational system, how would you change it now? Mm. The the purpose of an education, I think, and I say that in the broadest possible sense of the term, not something that happens in school, but like what we as people are trying to learn is the cultivation and indulgence of curiosity. So to you, you ideally, I think the goal is to find out what lights people up and help them pursue it and to take them seriously. This is something that my, my father is really skillful at. And he is a sort of patrician, um, you know, older, white-haired English gentleman with an accent. And so American teenagers were really, uh, they had a they had a sort of novelty interest, if nothing else, in hearing what he had to say. But as an educator, I, I've seen him teach in a number of contexts, and he is incredibly skilled at listening to young people and taking them seriously. And I realized that that's something that doesn't happen as often as we might kind of culturally assume. Um, it's it's an enormous gift. And I think it's it's a gift to anybody of any age, but especially young people who are used to being told, oh, you don't know anything yet, you don't, whatever. We're all interested in stuff. And 
ideally an education gives a space to pursue those interests. So, and, and by, by the same token, like you can't know if you're interested in something until you've been exposed to it, until you've had a chance to try it out. And this is why I think it can be a cruelty to tell children, you know, you're going to have to decide really for, for some college preparatory schools, like at the age of 13, 14, you're going to have to be planning for your future by taking X number of courses and X number of subjects. So you can get into a UC and go get this degree and then become a blah, 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 blah. And I am not against higher education. I'm not against any portion of the educational process, but I also think it's valuable to set students up to understand that they are in control in many ways, which is a hard thing to grasp when you're a young person, because you do have have a lot of onus placed on you. Culturally, you have a, you know, a lack of freedom because uh, either of your age or your community or your family or your peer group. And everybody's trying to, you know, indulge, like, how, how do I rest some feeling of control over my life and my passions? And this is cited often that, you know, it's a great tragedy that we read such great books when we're in high school, because largely the act of being told you're going to read this book means that a lot of people, A, won't, or B, if they do, will loathe it because they're being commanded to read a book rather than like getting to discover it on their own. And the best teachers that I had introduced such a wide variety of texts or created so many avenues and opportunities that allowed their students to pursue stuff if they felt so inclined that it wasn't, it's like you're duping people into saying that they have a choice when they are actually following your cunning plan. And that's not to say that all of education is a ruse, but that we need to have the we need to have a sense of control and agency, whether or not that is in some part illusory. It is valuable to know that you are the captain of your ship. And sometimes that doesn't look like going to like intensive after school training programs or doing a particular type of community service specifically because it's going to look good on your resume when you apply to an Ivy league. The, Every practice has value, but I think the, the practices that we are invested in have even greater value and understanding how to occupy space that doesn't necessarily have to be filled with outcome oriented action is crucial. And that comes back to mindfulness. It comes back to the sense of being able to sit with something and just kind of see what comes up. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. So how do you get from college to becoming a cartoonist? So when I was in high school, uh, this was the early 2000s and web comics were kind of on, on the up and up, you know, I was, I was involved in various internet communities and I was looking at a lot of artwork online. Uh, I, I drew a lot when I was in grade school. I mentioned my, my mother was a cartoonist for a short while, uh, before she had me. And when I was younger, like ran a flower pot painting stall that she sold pots at the farmer's market. And she had a small business based on her cartoons where she would do, they were, her stuff was largely like single panel, like New Yorker gag strips and, and she would, or gag panels and she would do t-shirts and mugs and greeting cards. You know, she had this little empire and she and my dad used to pack t-shirts and sell them out of their house in LA, um, before the business volume got to be too great. And they were like, look, we're two people. We can't do this. Um, we're going to change tack and do something else. And she drew with me a lot when I was a kid, I was really into art when I was young. I got the chance to go to lots of art classes and was drawing all the time at school and at home. And because my classes were fairly small, you know, like 13 to 16 kids, there generally was an artist, an athlete, and, you know, like sing- singular people. We are, we occupy these various archetypes. And generally, I didn't have a lot of, uh, barring my friend Anna, who I was talking about earlier, uh, I didn't have a lot of artistic community in person in Ojai, even though it was a very creative town. There were a lot of like fine artists, but it wasn't a big enough place that I could connect with other kids who liked drawing the stuff that I liked drawing. I was fortunate enough to have a family friend who was a graphic designer who mentored me from the ages of, I don't know, probably like 12 to 15. It's about three years. Um, And he was vital to my artistic development was someone who really took me seriously, looked at the work I was doing, which was largely like, you know, um, anime manga 
rip off fan art and said, Oh, this is, you're, you're good at what you do. Um, if you'd like to get better at doing this, I can teach you some foundational stuff, which is like, he didn't, he didn't chastise me for drawing something that he perceived as being lesser than traditional fine art, which I think was a genius move because it encouraged me to pursue, uh, basically a foundational art school course with him for a few years that was all about observational figure drawing and uh, drawing from life that did make me a better artist and did bring me back around to a cartooning style that was not entirely reliant on like surface level stylistic considerations that you see when you're copying from something that has such a developed visual idiom like manga. And I didn't end up drawing art that actually looks very much like that now. Uh, I've even gone back and tried to, you know, thinking, oh, I'm a better artist. I could definitely draw some kind of manga inspired character. And it's super hard. I don't know what I, I had just like different artistic DNA back then. Um, but Evan, my, my mentor was a really huge influence in my life but again, because he took me seriously and said, if you'd like to get better at this, I can show you how. And he gave me a lot of the building blocks that allowed me to continue pursuing an artistic practice, if not a cartooning practice specifically mm -hmm. through college. So when I got to college, I, I switched majors a bunch of times. I came in intending to do theater and then zigzagged into English and classics and uh, literature and, you know, various permutations thereof, but all kind of within the, I mean, it's liberal arts school, you know, like everything is kind of connected. And I ended up in the art department actually because I felt like I needed to trick myself I went to Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which is a very academically rigorous school. Um, and I wasn't drawing, drawing, drawing made me happy. And I would tell myself, oh, I can draw when I finish my homework. But being the kind of person who once I finish the following day's homework, I think, oh, well, I could get a jump on the next day's homework. So I'll just do that. And if I finish that, then I'll just get a jump on the following day's homework, which was rare because the workload was massive. But it meant that I never had a stopping point. I could never say, ah, oh, yes, I have done enough, capital E, and now we'll draw for fun. So aside from going to like taking myself out to figure drawing classes in Portland off campus, uh, I realized that if I wanted to be drawing, I would have to enroll myself in an art class, which I did. And then I kind of slipped and became an art major and ended up doing a read has a, a thesis um, component to each senior seniors uh, journey through the college. So you end up writing and producing a body of work your senior year that is kind of the summation of your academic experience uh, at the school. And in the art department, that means doing a creative project of some significant length and a written component as well. And I decided that I wanted to do comics. My, uh, my junior year, I think, the summer before my junior year in 2010, I, I guess I mentioned webcomics earlier. I should say that while all this was going on, I wasn't drawing my own comics, but I was reading webcomics all the time. I, you know, I had a bookmarks tab a mile long that had all of these different... Uh, entries from this burgeoning medium that at the time was getting more and more explosive. So back then it was largely webcomics about video games. And I was a staunch tomboy when I was younger and had mostly male friends. My freshman class in high school was nine kids, uh, eight boys, most of whom I'd known since grade school and me. And then I think one girl transferred in second semester of that year. <laughs> so it was pretty. Uh, it was a pretty masculine, heavy environment, and I started out reading all these web comics that were really uh, based around video gaming culture and all this stuff that I was tangential to, but not like s totally immersed in. But I also started reading web comics by women, and they were largely autobiographical stories that were being self-published online. These women weren't waiting for, 
you know, gatekeepers or publishers or people to say, oh, you can come sit at the boys table. They were just making work and sharing it. And I started to find community online through those comics, through sites like DeviantArt that was really meaningful to me. It, it, it showed me that there was a possibility that not like I could take the art that I was doing and I could put it online also. So there were seeds there, right? There were things germinating. And once I got into college, I was drawing more. And then I, in 2010, decided to do a summer session at the Center for Cartoon Studies, which is a graduate program for cartoonists in Vermont. And I did a little five-day intensive out there that really was the first time I'd been in a space with 36 other human beings of all different ages and spaces from all over the U.S. who all love drawing comics. And it was electric, and I loved it. And after that, I was like, all right, I'm going in. This is this is what I want. And, I mean, at least for now. <laughs> that's I feel like that's always the caveat. Like, this is what I, I want for now. This is what I want at this moment. Same goes for changing majors. Like, I don't feel as if I, I don't regret changing any of those majors because each one of those departments gave me something. And that to me was personally, that was what the purpose of a, a college education was for me was the opportunity to indulge my curiosity across a wide variety of subjects and just dabble. You know, sometimes you don't know whether you're cut out to be a classicist until you've taken a couple classics courses and you think, man, I love the mythology of this. I love the literature of it. There's just no way I'm learning Greek and Latin in the next three years. It's just not going to happen. Um, and you, you don't know until you try. So I did a lot of trying. And following that stint at the Center of Cartoon Studies, I came back to Portland. I enrolled uh, in an off-campus, low-impact program at a local organization called the Independent Publishing Resource Center. And they run a certificate program that's kind of like a, a low-impact graduate situation for people who would like to get into indie publishing and comics. And so I was doing that once a week in the evenings while juggling my course load at Reed and working an on-campus job and junior year was nuts. And my senior year, I translated all of that. I think I got a scholarship somewhere in there to do, to try and write and draw a graphic novel over the summer, which gives you a sense of how naive I was because like most graphic novels take years. And I was like, yeah, three months. I got this. This is fine. I got 12 pages done, uh, maybe like 80 pages of script. But, you know, 12 pages of finished art was still the longest continuous comic that I had drawn at that point. And this whole time I was publishing, self-publishing these little mini comics that were about my time, Tall Ship Sailing, which was kind of a weird niche, but I was into it. And my senior year, I ended up writing and drawing a 36-page comic called True Believer. And it was a story about the death of one of my mentors, one of my teachers at the IPRC program, Dylan Williams, who's a indie comics publisher, um, ran a company called Sparkplug Comics, and a huge influence on many, many, many people. And also, interestingly, someone with a strong background in kind of Buddhist and Eastern thought in his creative practice. And he taught the world comics component in the IPRC program where we were reading and exploring media from all over the world. A lot of stuff that really wasn't aesthetically intriguing to me at all, but it was just this vast exposure to a huge body of material. And he uh, passed away, he had leukemia and um, died sh shortly after I graduated from the program. And it was the first funeral I had attended. And it's interesting looking back on it because I didn't know a lot of the people there then. And when I look at my comics community now, the people who have become instrumental in my life, many of those people were there. And it was a really moving and transformative experience. And so I tried to tell this story of the impact that he had had on me and this meditation on why we do this, why, why we have creative practices, why we make, why we create, why we're compelled to talk about the stuff that we are. And I 
couched it in terms of a conversation that I was having with my dearest friend from college, uh, Nate Rabnett. Conover, who subsequently, he's Buddhist, and went off and joined a monastery. And so after we graduated, we both went on these really divergent paths. I really wanted to self-publish this comic that I had drawn, and the department wasn't going to pay for it. And so I launched a Kickstarter project my last three weeks as an undergraduate. And that Kickstarter was supposed to raise $1,200, which seemed like a ton of money to me back then. And and, uh, instead, I raised almost $12,000. And the campaign closed the morning that I graduated. My parents were up visiting me. And I walked across the stage and got my diploma with this heady experience of having made this thing that I cared about and putting it out in the world on a platform that was at the time, this was 2012, still fairly new. Um, and a bunch of people had rallied around it. You know, it was probably about three 300 people. I think it was 333, actually, the, the 333s. And they had all pledged actual cold, hard cash because they said, wow, we believe in this thing that you've made. We think it's beautiful. You should make more. And I don't come from a background. Um, I went through Reed entirely on the strength of financial aid and scholarship money. I think I took out one small loan that I was paying off my senior year by freelancing as an artist. And so I was very fortunate in that I graduated from college without any debt, which I I often talk about because I think it's valuable to remind students that we all come from different backgrounds and we all have different financial struggles, you know, and that struggle could even be, oh, my parents have a bunch of money and I've never had to manage my own money and I don't know what that looks like. That still counts as a struggle. It's easy for people to say like, oh, it must be nice, but we're all screwed up about money in some way. And I feel like we do students a huge disservice if we just talk about, and then I graduated and I went off and did this thing without talking about like how many tens of thousands of debt did you have? Mm -hmm. How much did you have to overcome? Like what are, because if you're talking about it in those terms, I think there are people who come into the arts world thinking that if they, they are not a full-time artist, they're not successful. And I think that's BS. If you've got student debt and you need a regular paycheck, like take that regular paycheck for the love of God. (laughs) Anyway, I I can talk about that stuff all day. Um, But Basically, that that was what catapulted me into full-time freelancing, was being able to walk out of college without student debt, with this big vote of confidence and some extra money in my pocket from having done this project. And I started tabling conventions. I started uh, connecting with other cartoonists. I'd been running a weekly drawing night at my house where I was asking local Portland creators if they wanted to just come over and drink cider and draw comics. And so we were doing that. I was building a community and... It kept going from there. I started interning at uh, Periscope Studio, which is now Helioscope, the collective of comics professionals that I'm a part of here in Portland. That was a huge stepping stone. Lots of those people were at Dylan's funeral. Like it all, it's, uh, this may have even been, maybe this was in a, um, Oh, it was it was in a Pema Chodron book that I was just reading that she talks about the, um, the course of a life being like sitting on a train facing backwards right? You, you can't see where you're going, but you've only seen where you've been. And once you're looking back, the track seems really coherent. And at the time, you don't always know that you don't always have that certainty. But it's funny to be asked questions like this, and then to ramble for 20 minutes about uh, how I ended up here, because everything I say, I'm like, oh, and this was instrumental. And of course, this was instrumental. And of course, this happened afterwards. And of course, this happened after that. And uh, I think that was what El Luna said, right, when you interviewed her, that there's this notion of, of course, of course, of course, this is happening. And I love that idea, because I think there are times when it really does feel like that. And there are other times where you think, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but I'm interested in it. And that counts for a lot. 
you brought up the money thing because you know one of the things that struck me in the XOXO talk you gave was the mention that you were at one point on food stamps, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to expand on that. Absolutely. Uh, let's first of all not say at one point. Let's say like for several years. <laughs> uh, I so I was. Um, At college, I had a really demanding course schedule. I worked on campus jobs um, the whole time I was there and lived in the dorms my freshman year and then moved off campus because it was cheaper, but you know, you still have to pay for rent and stuff. And somebody mentioned to me that as a student, you know, if I was going to school full time and working a job, I probably qualified for um, nutritional assistance. And I resisted it for a long time because I thought there are people who need it more than me. And I think a lot of folks think that way, that it's like, I, I don't really need this. Like, I can tough it up. I can I can make it through. And I think it's also hard to talk about because I wouldn't say that it was impossible for me to put food on the table. But from a, a poverty line standpoint, you know, like if you're just talking about the raw numbers, I qualified. So I went to the DHS office and I and I talked to the guy and he said exactly that. I mean, when when I said like I I don't there's got to be someone else who needs this more than me, and he said, look, you qualify. Like the num- the numbers are here, and the people who need this help, like we're we're reaching out to them. They're coming in. They're receiving it. We need to give this money to people. <laughs> like you qualify, take the help, take the help, and. So I did. And I received a variable amount depending on how much I was making. It was valuable for me because it it encouraged me to start tracking my finances from a pretty early stage. And that was something that my parents had certainly tried to instill in me. And and some of their training was there for sure. But um, in terms of finding a, a decent accounting software that tracked my spending and categorizing my expenses and all that stuff, it was that was invaluable. And if nothing else, I, I've never actually really connected those two things before, but I think that had a lot to do with it because in order to qualify for food stamps, you had to submit, you know, income reports. And so I received anywhere from like 80 to 200 bucks a month, depending on how much I was making at any given time. And that started my, I may have started my junior or senior year. And I, got off food stamps in 2015. Uh, And so that was what, three years or so, three or four years. And it was huge to have something stable. This is only tangentially related, but I, but I was thinking about it that, you know, predictors of success in children, there's been a lot of research because people are always keen to find out like, what is it that makes people resilient? What is it that makes them successful? How can their childhood circumstances impact later life? And a lot of the research points to the notion that children need one stable adult role model, right? And that can be a parent, it can be a teacher, it can be a pastor, it can be a whatever, like there are any number of different life roles that that can situate themselves in that place. But the stability of one person who loves you and believes in you. And I think the same can be said for the stability of financial support, right? It's just one less thing that you have to think about. And had I not had that support, that that backbone of like, I don't have to worry that I'm going to starve this month if I don't manage to drum up enough freelance business, because it's a really uncertain time starting out as a freelancer for anybody. Even if you're pivoting from another career path, right? And I know like you're somebody who's worn many hats over the course of your career, right? And done different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And absolutely, the farther along you get in your journey, when you're pivoting to something new, you can draw on the networks you've established. And theoretically, there's going to be nets there that can help catch you. But it's still scary every time. And 
starting out as a freelancer, it meant so much to me to be able to depend on that one kernel of reliable financial assistance. And it was, it started to become kind of a marker for me that I thought like when I can reliably say I can, I can replace this, I can do without this. Like I am making quote unquote enough money that I no longer need this crutch. Um, then I'll be making it as a freelancer. And that's kind of what the talk gets into is that really the rubric of making it is so nebulous and it's so different for all of us. And it changes so much throughout the course of our career. And we have to get honest with ourselves about what making it looks like. And sometimes we have to get honest about the fact that that's a really contradictory drive that making it or making enough money could be just not being on food stamps. Right. And I didn't really think beyond that. It was like, Oh, if I'm no longer below the poverty line, I'm successful. Whereas for a lot of people, like I think people who have come from a more um, privileged financial background might be like, Oh, when I'm, you know, making 200,000 a year, like then I'll be successful. Mm. Um, and this is something I've often struggled with is that if people ask me, you know, like, Oh, well, but that's silly. Like what, I mean, what about blue sky thinking? Like if you got, you know, a grant for a hundred thousand dollars tomorrow or somebody just came and like dropped that money in your lap, what would you do with it? And I'm often completely at a loss with stuff like that. I'm starting to gain more of an understanding of what I might do with it, but I, I have never been a primarily financially motivated person and becoming a small business owner, which I think is kind of different from being a freelancer, but generally the one is a feeder into the other. And we, we don't always get wise to that's to that being the thing that's happening until it's too late and you're already a small business owner. And then you wake up one day and you're like, Oh shit, <laughs> what do I do? I don't have an accountant. Um, it means for you have to start learning a lot of these skills. It's kind of sink or swim. And so while I haven't been someone who's financially motivated, I do enjoy understanding systems and I do enjoy feeling like I'm competent at my job. And as a small business owner, a lot of that means getting comfortable talking about money, mm. keeping track of your money, like saving it, investing it, you know, knowing where it's going, um, hiring people who know more about it than you do so that you can talk to them, getting comfortable with hiring people. If you're a DIY kind of person like I was, it is so hard to justify mining out work to other people, even if they're better at that job than you are, because you could save so much money by doing it yourself. But the fact of the matter is that at a certain point, there is a cost and you might be able to do it yourself, but you can do it. It takes so much more energy and time. And I was just talking to my mother about this on the phone the other day, and she was raising the question, you know, is this the best and highest use of my time? We were talking about something totally different, but I think it, it, uh, applies here as well as somebody who has scrimped and saved her whole life to kind of make, uh, unreliable income work the best that she can to build a stable life for her family. That, uh, that sense of, oh, but I can't pay someone else to do this. I can do it myself is really strong for her too. And I think a lot of that behavior stuff that I learned from her and both of us, interestingly, are going on this journey, you know, albeit many decades apart from one another of, of learning to let go a little bit and learning to trust in other people's professionalism. Wow. Yeah, it's so interesting that, you know, we have this this perception of, of, you know, feeling or thinking that we will have made it. And I remember for the longest time thinking, oh, I'll feel as if I made it when I finally get to write a book with a publisher. And, mm, oh, God, yeah. And <laughs> it happened. One. And you know what? I don't feel any different than I did. You know, it was awesome. I'm eternally grateful for it, but it didn't fill yep. whatever void I thought it would fill. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I definitely experienced that getting older and befriending more and more cartoonists who I really 
admired uh, who had had the opportunity to make books with publishers. And because I was privy to these lunch table conversations, you know, I was hearing them talk about like all the stuff that was going wrong. And it's not that doing a book with a publisher wasn't worth it. It's just that it came with costs and all the things that I had assumed, you know, this kind of happened to me as well with going to art school. Like I deliberately didn't go to art school because I love the humanities. I really wanted a liberal arts education. And so I went to read and I thought, well, if I'm really into art, you know, I'll go to grad school afterwards or, you know, I'll go get an art degree after this. But I wanted to go broader and uh, deeper in a lot of subjects. And I felt like art school would be a little stifling in that regard. Doesn't mean that I didn't spend a lot of time drooling over the Savannah College of Art and Design course catalog in the art building at Reed because, you know, they had whole semesters just devoted to lettering, lettering. Like our art department was three professors and (laughs) nine students and it was really small. And I uh, loved the notion of art school, but as I got older and I met more people who had actually been there and I started picking their brains, some of the stuff that I thought I would have gotten out of art school, they had gotten, but a lot of the stuff that I thought they would have gotten wasn't even on the menu. Um, artistic business training for a lot of them. You know, I, I talked to a lot of kids who came out of art school who were like, no, we had one professional best practices class where we learned how to write an invoice. And that was it. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of other stuff. And that seems like a huge missed opportunity, especially today with the internet and everything that it's done to change the careers of so many creators. I mean, I could not do what I do without the web mm-hmm. it's just that simple yeah. and i i fantasize about that sometimes like what would my life look like if i had, i had come of age at a time when the internet was not the thing that it is now mm-hmm. and i'm sure i would have done something interesting but you know it sure as hell wouldn't have been this yeah <laughs> i can relate Wow. Um, I can see why Matt referred you as a guest. This has been really phenomenal. So I want to finish with uh, one final question, which I know you've heard me ask. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Oh, boy. Um, okay. So I've been thinking about this because I've been listening to the archives. I have to I have to like fess up here. I'll give you my answer. And then I, so the, the thing that there's something that wrinkles me a little bit about this question, because it, it seems to suggest that there is a singularity to certain people. Uh-huh. And I've asked a lot of people in my life about this because, you know, I've been toying with it. On the one hand, there are people in my life that I think of as unmistakable or singular. But when I dig a little deeper into what it is about those people that really <sighs> resonates for me or really inspires me or really seems singular, it is actually the fact that they're not singular at all. They are nodes. They're like stations through which the trains of many, many different sources of inspiration travel. So I think for me, I would say that it's being willing to show up and own the factors that you are and the elements that make you curious about the world and to remain open to all of those influences in a way that makes you a conduit right? You're by flowing through you, those things are gaining something. They're being transformed in some way. And what comes out by necessity seems singular because you're the only person on earth who could bring those inspirations together. But that is only possible because you are plugged into a web of other influences and things and people and communities. And so it's, it's an interesting thing because I think everyone has it. And the question becomes more, how do you cultivate it? How do you share it? How do you bring other people into the space that you inhabit and show them something and say, this is wondrous. Wow. Wow. Well, I think that makes a really uh, fitting end to our conversation. Where can people learn more about you and your work? 
most of my stuff is uh, available online for free. I'm a big believer in it. My web portal presence is at lucybellwood.com. That's L-U-C-Y-B-E-L-L-W-O-O-D.com. And I'm on most social media as at lubellwoo, L-U-B-E-L-L-W-O-O. And I write and record conversations about this kind of stuff all the time, and I really love sharing about it. So I would love to hear from you if you want to drop me a tweet. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that, and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.